We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, El Monte. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, El Monte. I heard a great story of a very old man who was sitting in church and the pastor was having more of a conversation with his congregation and he was talking on the subject of the need to forgive one another. And um, he just simply asked a question and said, well, how many of you uh, have no one that you need to forgive or you have no enemies? And one guy in the back, that old 95-year-old man, raised his hands. And the pastor was kind of shocked. And he says, well, how old are you? He says, well, I'm 95 years old. He says, you've been on the planet for 95 years and you've got no enemies? Well, you better get up here and tell us how that took place. So they had to wait for him. He was in the back, and he slowly got up to the pulpit, and he finally said, it's real simple, I outlived every one of them. And um, that's one method. That's one method. Just live long enough that all your enemies will die, and all the people that have wronged you will be dead, and you won't have to think about them or worry about them any longer. But that's not the method that the Lord has chosen, isn't it? He has called us to forgive as he has forgiven us. So tonight, we're going to take as a basis for our study, which is entitled The Power of Forgiveness, we're going to take the seven sayings of Christ on the cross, but kind of look at them through the lens of the first thing that he says about the Father forgiving them. So I think that's kind of the linchpin. Once we start there, the rest of the things that Jesus did on the cross will be enabled to do as well. So If you'd please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. We're going to be all over in verses of Scripture because there's nowhere in the Bible these seven statements are read exactly in order, so we have to go back and forth through the Gospels. And the first one is found in Luke, chapter 23, and in verse 34. It says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. So as he was being crucified, as he was being hurt, as he was being rejected and despised and lied about and gossiped about, at that point, he forgave them. He didn't wait for them to repent. He didn't wait for an apology. And somehow he was able to consider the impact of their sin upon themselves more than on how it was impacting him. And he cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think this is the most unselfish act of forgiveness possible. And so the best way to forgive people is as it is happening to you, you forgive them. And you could be free. If not, there will be a battle. There will be a struggle. Now, Jesus, in the Gospel of John chapter 15, he talked about opposition to himself. And at verse 25, he says, they're going to hate you because they hate me. They're going to persecute you because they persecuted me. And verse 25 says, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled. In their law, they hated me without a cause. So Jesus said, people are going to hate him for no reason, without a cause. And he says, this is a fulfillment of scripture. It's found in at least a couple of places, and I'll read these verses, out of Psalm 69 Verse 4, it says this, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must 
restore it. Psalm 109, verses 1 through 5 says this, Do not keep silent, O God, of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. But I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. These are prophetic of what would happen to Jesus. And so here, he was hated without a cause. I want to turn that around and say that we need to forgive without a cause, without a reason. We just need to do it out of grace. This is an interesting word, the phrase without a cause. It's actually one word in Greek, and it's translated freely or undeservedly. So they hated him undeservedly, but then the Bible then uses that word in a positive way and say this is the way God loved us and God forgave us without a cause. It's found in Romans 3:24 but being justified freely that's our word freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there's going to be people that will hate you without a cause but you need to love them without a cause as well. That is the forgiveness of God. And this word without a cause as its root is the word gift, doron in Greek. So really, forgiveness is a gift that you give to someone else out of grace freely that they do not deserve. And that's the very way that Jesus forgave upon the cross that we need to forgive one another as well. Also in that psalm, it says that he gave himself to prayer. Jesus prayed for people on the cross. Prophetically, Isaiah 53 verse 12 says, he made intercession for the transgressors. So once again, Psalm 109 verse 4 says, in return for my love, They are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. I believe what we're going to look at these next six sayings are possible only if we enter into this first step of forgiving others. And where this message came from, on on Sunday mornings, we're going through the Gospel of John, and we just finished chapter 19, chapter 20. We looked at the cross, and, and I was looking at the sayings of Christ, and I thought, it is interesting that the first thing that Jesus said on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they do. I kind of knew that, but never really thought about that. Then I thought, well, I want to see what the other things are in order, because I didn't have them memorized. And I began to see that a person that is walking around in unforgiveness and bitterness isn't going to be able to do these other six things to the degree that the Lord would want us to when bitterness and unforgiveness is at the heart. So this is kind of like the linchpin that kind of unleashes the dam of the rest of the good things that God wants to do through us. But this is where people get, could get stuck. And what I try and tell people is there is no safe place on earth. The church is not a safe place. Christians are not safe. We hurt one another. We wrong one another. So we need to be good at forgiving. We need to be quick at forgiving. The Bible would even say, don't let the sun go down. On your wrath. It's great counsel, hard to live out. But I believe that Jesus, although he was nailed to that cross, was the free, most free person at that place. Because he released this forgiveness without a cause. Things start here. So the second saying is also in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 34. So the first thing we focused on is the impact upon ourselves. It frees us, and I think it opens up opportunities for ministry as we forgive others graciously. 
And this, so the second thing would be the impact on evangelism. The impact on evangelism. Look at Luke 23, verses 39 through 44. We come back to this section here. Verse 39, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. So as you read the Gospels, according to Mark chapter uh, 15, verse 32, and Matthew 27, verse 44, both these guys were first ridiculing Christ. They both blasphemed him at the beginning. But then for some strange reason, one of the criminals had a radical change of mind and focus on who Christ was. We're going to get to that. But the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we need indeed justify, justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. What is it that changed this man's heart and mind? I'll make a suggestion. I can't prove this dogmatically. But you're a criminal. You're a pretty hard criminal if you're dying upon a cross and you're criticizing someone else. But even the hardest of people want forgiveness. They want to be clean from their sin, but most of them don't know where to go. We know we bring it to the cross. So here's this guy in his last hours, and he knows that. He knows he's not going anywhere, and he hears this offer, this prayer to God for forgiveness. I think at that point something struck in that man's heart that opened his heart, softened his heart, because he saw something in the nature and character of Jesus. And now he wants this same forgiveness. And when I look at this prayer, it really is like the worst sinner's prayer ever. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, the guy never went to church. He didn't give. He wasn't baptized. He didn't even say the prayer right. Jesus, come into my life. (laughs) Forgive me of my sins. He just cried out in faith, and the Lord said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, what happens is bitterness is something that's inside of us. And it develops an attitude, it develops a mindset, it develops a spirit. And what I mean by that, not that you're possessed by some spirit, but you carry yourself differently than in joyous attitude and a gracious attitude. Everything begins to bug you. The little things begin to bug you. And even what what other people are doing, you get mad at because there's that bitterness that's already there. Because you haven't dealt with it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15 says this. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest any, anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. So bitterness springs up, and I know this for, for certain. I was raised over in Hacienda Heights, didn't get too far from home, pastoring now in, in La Mirada, been there. Uh, 30 plus years now, since 1985, I started pastoring when I was about 13 years of age over there in the city of La Mirada. And before I became a Christian, I had radical bitterness in my heart, murderous bitterness. And it was vented towards my father because the way they treated my mom and abused my mom and, and was just, you know, was an alcoholic, a drunk. And so when I became in junior high, I just started stuffing a lot of anger and thinking that's the place to put it. But it would spring up at the wrong time. 
So I was already kind of boiling on the inside so little things would set me off. I thought it was everybody else. It was, it's not what comes into a man that defiles him, but it what comes out. My heart was filled with poison. And it was only when I came to Christ that he was able to deliver me and set me free. But you could tell when you're bitter, when, you, when these things just kind of spark out of your mind, you say things under your breath. For no apparent reason, you have a fight in your mind with this person. You like see them, and I see I'm going to tell them this, and they're going to tell me that. Then I'm going to tell them this, and it's like something's wrong with you if you are having a fake debate in your mind. You're not very free, are you? We might need to institute you in a hospital as well if that keeps going. But you have to realize that you're infected with a disease. Bitterness is like a disease. Wherever you go, you're, you're spreading that disease. Although you don't realize it, it just ekes out through your pores like a virus and impacting others. That's why I had to get free of this. One person said, bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick. Interesting quotes. This is why Paul would say, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. It means deal with it quickly. But I love what that great theologian Phyllis Diller said about this verse. She said, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Stay up and fight all night. There's some good advice in that as well. But the impact of our reaching out in the gospel is as we are free of bitterness and we're walking in the mercy and the forgiveness and the peace of God, I believe that we are more concentrating on other people and their need for Christ rather than I'm focusing on myself and this problem that I have. It's like this big stone that's there when I wake up and it's a ball and chain that I'm carrying around and I'm not that effective or as effective. I could still share the gospel because the gospel is powerful, but I'm not concentrating on it. Because I don't have the joy of the Lord. <laughs> Why would I want to make people miserable like me? So I'm really not sharing. Jesus takes time on the cross to lead another sinner into the kingdom of God. Billy Graham has done a lot of uh, statistics, or his association has, on why Christians don't share the gospel. I'm not going to give you all the numbers, but one of, the, one of them that st- stands out for us tonight He said over the years they found that 12% of the people admit, these are Christians that are taking classes on evangelism, the reason they don't share more is that they say that their life doesn't speak of how it should and they lack the authority to do so. There's no doubt that sin or compromise in some way impacts how we view sharing the gospel. Jesus is totally free as we need to be, concerned about others, focused on others and their issues, rather than consumed in self. So it starts with the forgiveness of others. As God has forgiven us, we forgive others. I think that inspires evangelism. The bitter heart, it restricts it. The third thing, the impact upon family. Turn with me to John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. When I first got saved, I went and told all my family that they needed Jesus Christ or they're going to burn in hell, and then they didn't want to talk to me anymore, and I was surprised by that response. A lot of zeal, but no knowledge. And I had a grandmother that was, um, she was a fireball. She spoke her mind. You have to guess what she was thinking. And I told her, I'm called to the ministry. At this point, I still wasn't talking to my father. I was separated from him. I was a Christian maybe about six weeks. And I'm driving my grandmother to the doctor, and she says this. She says, how could you be a pastor if you don't even talk with your own father? Uh, It was like a knife that just penetrated my heart. 
because she was right. Now, what I wanted to say to justify myself is, well, you're, you're the mom, and you don't talk with them, so what are you talking about? But that wouldn't have made my situation right. At that point, I realized, time out. I'm saying one thing, but other people are seeing something else, and it's turning them from the gospel or hindering the effectiveness. And so the effect upon family, because they see us, they know us best. So in John chapter 19, look at the impact that Jesus is going to have upon his family as he's dying. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. I love that where the way John describes himself, he's a disciple whom Jesus loved. He says that four times about himself. And I honestly hope you could say that about yourself as well. Because this is all about grace. You are the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, a lot of times what we think is, well, I'm the disciple that Jesus kind of like tolerates. And I'm just barely, you know, in the king. No, you are the disciple that he loves. And he loves greatly. And so John here is there. And he says to his mom, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple looked, took her to his own home. Now, I'm sure you've heard enough studies on crucifixion. Bottom line, extremely painful, right? It was hard to breathe, let alone. So to talk would cause pain. To breathe would cause pain. Just to exist would cause pain. But Jesus, in all that pain, is able to turn and look to his family and be concerned about his family member more than himself. Again, I believe that's what the love of God flowing through someone's heart does. See, someone that's bitter and angry, all they could think about is, I need someone to minister to me. I need someone to help me feel comforted. And bitterness is a comfort that you could just keep pouring all kinds of salve on it and emotion and time and prayer and energy. It's never going to be satisfied. That's why we got to get rid of it. And then we could look to others and see how what is happening to us is impacting them. Jesus was concerned about his mom, rightfully so. But it's in the context of he's the one that was suffering. So even though you are going through difficult times and challenging times, the Lord would still want you to consider how what you're going through is is impacting your family. How are they taking it? And you should be concerned about them. But see, if you're consumed in how this hurt me and how this is wrong to me, you're not going to be able to take care of the people that are around you. So we need to start with the issue of forgiveness. Now, family forgiveness is a big one. I shared my own story that when I got saved, I had, there, there was a point where I saw for the last time, or at least what I wanted the last time, the bruises on my mom's face, because my dad, be, they, they would go out and drink, and they'd get in a brawl and fight, and I'd see the effect of it the next day. And the next morning when my mom got up, she was beat up pretty good, and I knew that my dad had a gun, a shotgun in his closet, I knew where he kept it, and in my mind, I, I formulated a plan, I'm going to go get the gun, and I'm going to kill him. That's how mad and angry I was. But all I can say is by the grace of God, I didn't carry that out. But I plotted it in my mind how to do it, where it was, saw myself doing that. And I just left the house at that point. So that's the type of anger that I had within me. And Jesus comes in, and I get saved. And someone was praying for me. They laid hands on me. And they said, the Lord's given them a word of knowledge. They say, they see something very dark in your heart. And it was at that point, it was like the conviction of God came upon me. And I realized that that darkness was my anger that I was justifying. I'm saying, I have reasons why I'm angry. These things happen. They shouldn't have. They shouldn't happen to a a family, a teenager, uh, a parent, but they did. And so I was justifying the anger. 
And then I was read that scripture out of Matthew 18 of that servant that was forgiven all that debt. That was a, that was a, you know, a lifetime of imprisonment worth, and then someone never would pay that debt off, and the king forgave him. Then he went and found someone that owed him 1% of that and said, pay up what you owe, and he, and, he, and he couldn't, so he cast him into the prison. It says, the Lord was angry at that servant. I said, and I realized, kind of like when Nathan said, you're the man, I realized, that's me. I'm that servant that won't forgive the small amount, and God's forgiven me an eternal amount. And it broke my heart. It convicted me. And I learned a couple of things about family forgiveness. If you watch, if you watch TV, and just in a lot of relationships, there's a lot of breakdown between fathers and their children. And it's devastating. It's devastating for that to happen. Because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 that children are to honor their father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it would be well with you and you'd have a long life. And when that honor is, is not given to the parents, especially a father and son, it doesn't go well with that person. And it wasn't going well with me. See, I thought everyone else had the problem. I thought it was my teachers. I thought it was my boss. They don't, you know, they're, they're the knuckleheads. Once you break that authority, that line of authority in your home, then there's no other place to have it established because that's the first place of authority. And when that relationship breaks down, it devastates young men's lives. Then they go to school, and it's the teachers, and it's the principal, then it's their boss, then it's the police, then ultimately it's even the pastor because they haven't learned to submit to authority. The first thing the Lord had me do as a Christian, I was only about six or seven weeks old, to go back to my dad because I had yanked myself out of his house and to apologize to him for dishonoring him and disrespecting him. And when the Lord put, in that, put it, that in my heart, I, I said, get out of here, Satan. <laughs> I thought there's no way that could be the Holy Spirit. But I knew that it was. And I went not expecting my dad to apologize for anything, but I was owning my sin. And when I left there, I left there free changed and transformed and it was like shackles were lifted off of me and i believe that this runs deep in our culture and our society and i believe it's the power of jesus christ that could bring transformation i'm sure you heard of a writer by the name of ernest hemingway and i believe that writers write things that are inside of them that they're dealing with that they don't necessarily speak of but he wrote in a book a short story called the capital of the world it's a fictitious story, but I think it gets at the heart of what I'm trying to say. And there was a, a father and son, his teenager son. They were estranged from each other. The son's name was Paco, and he had wronged his father, and, he, and as a result, he was ashamed, and he ran away from home. Well, the father did everything he could to search for his son and couldn't find him. But he searched all over Spain, but still couldn't find the boy. So finally, in the city of Madrid, as a last desperate attempt, to find his son, the father placed an ad in the daily newspaper, and the ad read this, Paco, meet me at the hotel, Montaña, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. So the father, in Hemingway's story, prayed that the boy would see the ad somehow, and maybe he would show up. So when he came on that Tuesday at noon, the father arrived at the hotel, and he couldn't believe his eyes. An entire squadron of police officers have been called out in an attempt to keep order among 800 young boys. 800 young boys named Paco that showed up seeking the forgiveness of their father. Now, that didn't happen. But this guy's writing, and I think he's writing about some of his own issues. Watch, watch 
programs. Watch how often, how often, in almost every program, there's a breakdown between the father and the son or daughter in those relationships. I call them daddy issues. I'm like, well, there's a daddy issue, even in Star Wars, Skywalker and Darth Vader. So it's just, it, it permeates, and these are the people that are writing things. I think it's because it's in their own life. And this is destroying the family. And when it comes into the body of Christ as well, it's destructive. And people carry this around for years. And sometimes it's, it's something that you have to let go because you've received the forgiveness of God. Anytime an authority would violate you and you would not forgive, you're going to struggle until you release that unto the Lord. Even if that authority is 100% wrong. I had one person tell me, it was really big of you to forgive your dad. And I said, no, you're looking at it wrong. No, it was very small of me to be bitter. Very small of me to be bitter. And that's why I see it now through the eyes of Christ. So here, Jesus is able to minister to his family and have an impact upon them because he's not worried about what's happening to him. He's all about love and mercy and grace. And maybe, maybe we're not reaching our family as effectively because we have some hostility towards other family members. So we can't come in and preach love and peace and forgiveness. I don't talk to my aunt. I don't talk to my brother. I don't talk to my sister. The message gets diluted. The fourth statement focuses on the impact of suffering. Turn with me to Mark chapter 15, verse 33 and 34. Mark 15. Verse 33 and 34. Jesus will say this. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from 12 to 3, it was dark. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. And there was a way in which the rabbis taught in that day that the rabbi would quote the first verse of a passage, like a psalm, and then it would be an indication, I'm talking about the whole psalm, not just the verse that I'm quoting, but all that's in that psalm. And if you do read Psalm 22, there's, there's great prophecies about the crucifixion. Verse 17 says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18 says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. A beautiful prophecy about the crucifixion. So the application that I'd like to make is as you have suffered or suffered wrong or dealing with forgiveness, you're going to need to look to what the Word of God says on the subject to be able to handle it appropriately. And let me give you a, a couple places of Scripture. First, just in general, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Corinthians were having problems with one another, and they're going to go to court, and they're going to sue each other. And what Paul says if you go to court, you've already lost. doesn't matter who's, who, what the judge says. You've lost because it's affecting the gospel. And so he says, somebody needs to suffer the loss. Somebody just needs to embrace all the wrong, take it upon themselves, and absorb it, and move forward, and say we're free of this. The loss there would have been some sort of financial loss. This loss could be in relationship. It could be in prestige or honor or reputation. Someone's got to absorb it like Jesus did. Jesus absorbed our loss. The Bible says that he became poor, though he was rich, he became poor to make 
many rich. And he then becomes our example. Sometimes we just need to absorb the whole thing, even though we are 99.999%, not at fault, let's move forward so the kingdom of God doesn't suffer. I will become poor, I'll become despised, I will own it so that someone else could move on and be blessed. That's what Jesus did. And talk about poor. I mean, they ripped his clothes off and divided his garments for him. They stripped the very clothing that he had. I don't know to what extent was still left underneath, but he didn't have much on. That's poor. I mean, that's not poor. Like in the South, they say that's Poe. I mean, that's like deadly Poe. I mean, had nothing. Jesus did that for us. And he's the example for us to follow. Not, I want my rights, I want my way, I want people to honor me, I want people to see it my way. He was forsaken by God. He took the sin of mankind upon himself. He bore that for us. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And verse 21 through 23. Here's how we suffer. Jesus is the example for suffering. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Um, I... I'm 54 years old. I became a Christian when I was 19. And I thought living in my home was hard, creating bitterness. It wasn't until after I became a Christian that it got hard. It wasn't until after I became a pastor. My, my biggest wounds were not from the way my dad treated me, but the way other Christians, the way other Christians had been treated. I had one point where the church wanted to throw me out. They wanted to get rid of me. And so on a Sunday morning, they had stairs like this, and 30 people sat up there and said, you're no longer the pastor here. On a Sunday morning service. And then they had a guy in the back, and they put a screen up and said, you've done these five things. And one of the things they said I did was stole $50,000 from the church. 50, we, we had like $500 in the bank, so that, that was a miracle in itself that I had stole money that we didn't even have. But anyways, I, my reputation got thrashed. And I was ready to just pack my Bible, go to the East Coast, and start all over. The Lord said, no, you stay there. And he gave me this passage of Scripture. But I said, Lord, my reputation's been ruined. I'd go down and talk with Pastor Chuck. And he said, 50? I heard it was 100,000. <laughs> so it was growing. By now, it's like a million-dollar caper that I, that I pulled off. But the Lord gave me this passage of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 21 through 24 it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving as an example that you should follow in his steps. So we're going to suffer in general because Christ suffered, but then we're supposed to suffer in the same way that he did, with the same character that he did. And that's what the next verse says, verse 23, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And here's the phrase the Lord gave me, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So what the Lord said is, give me your reputation, put it in my hands, I know the truth. I said, I know you know, but I want everyone else to know. And it, the Lord didn't promise me that. He says, if I want to take your reputation and drug it through the mud, then I'll do that. I did that with my son. He was forsaken by me. He became sin. That's part of what he, his footsteps were, were to be like Christ, were to follow him. And the Lord wanted me to follow with the same heart attitude. So I just said, Lord, here's my reputation. Take it. Do with it whatever you want. And there was a comfort that came in because then, I, then the Lord spoke to me as, I don't need people to like you, Brian. I don't need people to respect you. My hand is upon you, and my word will go through, and my word is powerful, so don't worry what other people think. And at that point, there was a freedom. 
So I, you know, I, not in a prideful way, but I could really care less what anyone thinks anymore. It's a freeing thing. So I don't care what you think about this message. I don't care if you think I'm going to go too long. I see the clock. That don't mean anything. <laughs> Just joking a little bit. Don't want to scare you. And then I was in the doctor's office, and I came across this cute little book on not worrying about what people think. It was a story of a father, a son, and a donkey traveling from one point to the next. And the first city they go through, the father has the hold of the rope carrying the donkey, and the, and the son's sitting on the donkey. And these people say, look at that son, how disrespectful. Why, don't, why doesn't he let his older father sit on that donkey? That would be, that would be courteous. So they switch because they heard that. The next day they're going through the father sitting on the donkey and the son's now leading by the rope. And this town says, look at that father. That's so careless. The donkey could get away from that young boy's hand. And so, you know, he should be leading. So the second town, both of them are sitting on the donkey. And these people say, oh, that poor donkey. I mean, all that weight upon that donkey. So the last city, it shows the father on top of him is a son. On top of him is a donkey and they're walking through. That's what it is when you're trying to please everybody. It really is a freeing thing to say, my reputation is in God's hand. I sleep, I sleep well at night. I sleep well at night knowing my heart's right with God. That's all I could do. That's, that's what Jesus had to do. He had to suffer. And he suffered publicly, shamefully. His clothes ripped off and beaten and hanging there on the cross. If he went through that, we're going to have to go through that. But three days later, God honored him and gave him a name which is above all names, that at his name every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess. So God's ways are opposites. Paul also says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. See, when you suffer wrongfully and are, are, are lied about without a cause and despised upon, Jesus comes in and says, that's exactly what I experienced. And there's a fellowship, that, there's a bond that's, there that's deeper. But not if you're fighting it, not if you're resisting it, not if you're wanting your way, because that's not what Jesus can't fellowship with that. He can't come in and say, yeah, that's good that you're angry. Yeah, that's good. You were treated wrong. I understand. He doesn't coddle us that way. What he says is, I set the example. You follow in my footsteps. If you want to be free, you want to be productive in the kingdom of God, this is how it happens. The fifth thing, the fifth statement, the impact upon relationships, back to John chapter 19 and verse 28. So after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now, this is the shortest of all the statements. One Greek word, dipso. And what it shows is that his full humanity, that Jesus Christ was fully human, just like us. It is interesting that in Mark chapter 15, Verse 23, it says that Jesus rejected the drink. And sometimes it's hard to put all the verses together because verse 29 says, Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put hyssop on it, and put it in his mouth. And this, this drink he did take. So obviously from the scripture, there were two times he was offered something to drink. The first time, it says it was offered with myrrh. And that means that there was a medicine that was there. There was a painkiller involved, and that's the one that he rejected. And I rejected it because he said, no, I'm going I'm to embrace the full brunt of the full pain of the cross. That's what he came to do. But this, just for survival effect, he was able to be able to drink this little bit of wine or a little bit of sour drink. And tradition is that there was a group of Jewish women that would have mercy upon people being crucified. 
And according to Proverbs 31, verse 6 and 7, this is what they do for them. It says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So it was an act of mercy, an act of kindness, but it didn't take away from the pain. Jesus was fully human, 100% human, 100% divine. And because of that, he experienced human relationships, human emotions. He got tired, he was thirsty, he got frustrated, he got angry, he experienced everything that we experienced. And sometimes we kind of put Jesus up on a pedestal and he's like totally different than us. Yes, he is because he's God, but he's exactly the same in our humanity except without sin. And that means that he's experienced everything that you have experienced. It hurt Jesus, I'm sure, when Judas betrayed him with a kiss. I'm sure he experienced some sort of emotion. So we don't want to associate with that. We just want to look at him as divine, and he just kind of got through it because he was God. No, he experienced everything that we would to the same degree, but yet he was willing to forgive and to move on and be merciful and kind. Jesus made himself vulnerable so he could sympathize with our weakness. So he understands exactly what you are going through. I want to read something to you by C.S. Lewis. Because the bottom line, what he talks about here, it's in his book called The Four Loves. If you're going to love, it's going to cost you. It says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and all the entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket... Safe, dark, motionless, airless, it'll change. It will not be broken. It'll, not, it'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell itself. You're going to love people, you're going to get hurt. People are going to disappoint you. That's just part of our human frailty and nature. And this is why grace and forgiveness has to be such a large part of our life. You think you get over something, it could happen again. You need to be big forgivers because God's been gracious to us. The sixth thing is the impact on salvation. You're in John 19, John 19, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In English, three words, three very powerful words, it is finished. So think of three words that are powerful. I love you is one of them, right? In and out is another. I noticed when I pulled up to church, I was thinking about coming back on Sunday. But this word in the Bible is one Greek word, tetelestai, and it was used three different ways. It was used after an artist would finish his work of art, say like a painting, he'd say, Tetelestai, it's done. He finished all the strokes. Second, it was used of a servant or a slave who did what the master wanted. The master said, go do this. He would say, Tetelestai, I completed the task. And even maybe more importantly, it was used in the business world, which means paid in full. So when Jesus died upon the cross, he said paid in full, meaning the, the payment for our sin was absolutely complete. And if we embrace that payment, we owe nothing to God. God's forgiveness is full. It's not partial. Um, Romans talks about the word propitiation, which means satisfaction. God's fully satisfied through the death of Christ. That's the impact that it has upon salvation.
So Jesus brought a perfect salvation for us. Now, that's so important for us. But just think how important not just three words are, but one word is pass or fail. What that means to a teenager doing a driver's license. Fair or foul if you're into sports. I could change a game. Guilty or not guilty in a court of law. Or yes or no to a marriage proposal. One word could change someone forever. Yes or no in a marriage proposal. I've been pretty heavy, so I'll tell you another interesting story that I heard about a marriage proposal. There was a guy that he was um, in ministry, and he was ended up going into a um, you know hospital for people that were had a lot of emotional problems. And he wanted to minister to them, and he came across this one room, and there was a guy in there yelling out, "Linda, Linda, Linda, why did you do this to me?" And he was shocked. He said, "What? What is his problem?" He says, "Well, he really loved this gal named Linda, and she ran off and married another guy." So goes to the next room, and he's in the room. Different guy saying, Linda, 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 why? And, he, and the guy said, well, what, what's his problem? He said, that's the guy that married Linda. So, <laughs> so sometimes one word can change a lot of things for you. But this changes a lot for us, meaning all of your sin, all of your sin has been forgiven. Every sin that you desired to do, thought about doing, have committed in the past, all your sin in the future was paid for at the cross because this one word, wiped out. Now what Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, says, Therefore I say to you, this woman whose sins were forgiven a lot, her sins which were many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And there's a principle in the Bible, if you know the extent of your sin, you know that God has wiped it out completely, what it does, it manufactures someone that is filled with love. So think on how much God has forgiven you. That's the response we need to deal with people that have wronged us. And I don't think that we've even repented of all of our sin. We haven't asked God specifically for everything, but he forgives us because he's merciful and kind. And so God has wiped out, he's cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. We should be people that greatly love because we have our, a lot of our sins forgiven. I don't ever want to forget where I came from. Not just the city of Hacienda Heights, but when God saved me, I was away from my family. I actually was in a foster home. I got kicked out of a foster home because I got trouble there. And another family in the same city of Hacienda Heights took me in. Then I had a heart virus. I could have died from it. And that is when someone came and brought me to a Bible study where I got saved and called into the ministry. So my life was hanging there by a thread. There wasn't much to it. God reached way down and rescued me. Right over in the city of Hacienda Heights there. I spent a little bit of time in El Monte here. I shared this at the men's, at the men's conference that we had. My first visit to El Monte was when I was 14 years age. We used to hitchhike off the 60 freeway, go to the mall, cause trouble there at the mall and the pinball games, and we'd sneak into the movies. Then at late at night, we'd take the bus back. It cost 35 cents at that point. And we developed a relationship with the bus driver, and he would drop us off right at the light, right before the 60 freeway on 7th Avenue. But even though there wasn't a bus stop there, it saved us a quarter mile of walking. Well, a new bus driver was, was taking us home that night, and we were causing some trouble in the back. And um, we said, hey, can you drop us up at the light? The other guy does it all the time. So he got to the light where the freeway you know, is, and he said, there's no bus stop here. And he gunned it, and he went right on the 60 freeway. 
The next stop was on Peck Road over in El Monte. Like 11 o'clock at night. That's why I've never come back to El Monte ever since that point because I was scared to death. So I know you people have a lot that God's forgiven you of your sin. Amen? You've been forgiven much. I'll tell you one other story I, I know about El Monte, and this is why I know that you guys have been forgiven a lot by God. I had a dream one night, and there was uh, Peter was there, and Jesus was there. I was standing. I was, I was in heaven, and Peter came rushing up. He said, Lord, there's some guys over at the pearly gates, and they're from El Monte. And the Lord said, well, we welcome people from El Monte. Go tell them to come on in. So Peter went back, and a couple minutes later, Peter comes back, and he says, Lord, they're gone. They're gone. And the Lord said, the guys from El Monte said, no, the pearly gates. They stole them. <laughs> So I know you guys are big sinners over here in El Monte. I, I, you know, the funny thing is I only get a guest speak one time at each church. I've never been invited back. I'm not sure why. <laughs> All right, the last thing, the impact upon submission. Luke 23, verse 46. Luke 23, verse 46. This is the last thing Jesus says upon the cross. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having breathed, having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus laid down his life. No one took it from him. Jesus would even predict, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified. Three days later, I'll rise from the dead. And he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. So Jesus was in control of all this, the way his life went, and he submitted ultimately to the Father, saying, Father, this is the life that you gave me. Part of it involved this crucifixion, but into, into your hands I commit my spirit. He didn't do it in an angry way or frustrated. Why did I have to go through this, and why did this situation happen? He submitted to the will and purpose and plan of God the Father. We'd be wise to do the same thing. To trust him that whatever has happened in my life, God has a, a reason for it, a purpose, and a plan, and I have to submit to it. I have to say, Lord, into your hands I, I commend my life. It's not my last breath right now, but this situation, I'm going to go through it. It's what you have for me, and I want to go through it with a gracious attitude towards others. I don't want to have to get to the end, and then two years later, I finally forgive somebody. But I want to be like Jesus. In the midst of it, say, Father, forgive them. Now, I'll say this. I'm preaching this. I'm not there yet. I am not at the point when someone wrongs me that I say, Father, forgive them. I do pray for them. Father, strangle them, and, and then forgive them. That would be nice. <laughs> so I'm working on this. I know this is what's freeing. I know this is what's best. I know this is the example that Jesus set. That's what I want to get to. I want to get through things with the right attitude. Right from the start. Not have to go through all the justification and the hardening of the heart and the callous and finally get through it and realize, yeah, I should have did this a long time ago. Been carrying this stupid thing around. Hasn't helped me. Need to get rid of it. Need to forgive. So I need to I need to submit my life into the hands of the Father, and He has this season that I'm going through. And I trust you. Trust you, God, this is part of your plan, and that you're going to bring good out of this situation. It's a lack of submission to want to fight and justify and have God fix all the things that are going wrong. I've just found most of the time God doesn't come in and rescue me. He doesn't come in and fix the things that I want to be fixed. What he does say is, I'm not going to do it your way, but I will give you grace to go through it. That's what he told Paul, right? 
Paul said, take this thing away. The Lord said, no. But my grace is sufficient. The grace of God to strengthen us in the midst of the way life brings us. That's God's plan and purpose. The quicker we do that, the quicker we will experience the joy of the Lord. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.